The piece is about decimating the idea of now. So it's about relativity. There is no such thing as now. It's really just to chisel away at what we believe to be true is not there. It's about questioning our reality. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. For more than 30 years, the acclaimed British sculptor Conrad Shawcross has been preoccupied with the concept of time. Throughout a career defined by blurring the boundaries between art and science and devising ambitious constructs that ask audiences to contemplate the world around them, Shawcross has experimented with different perceptions of time, from its measure in relation to human lives and cosmic events to how it operates as a force for change. Shawcross's latest exploration on the subject began with an unlikely source, the luxury Scotch whiskey maker Royal Salute. Drawing inspiration from the incredible expanse of time contained within an opulent 53-year-old Royal Salute whiskey blend, Shawcross created a spectacular kinetic sculpture that merges a massive sapphire blue glass disc with an oak spindle and an oblong crystal decanter to represent how time functions on multiple levels. The new artwork, titled Royal Salute Time Chamber by Conrad Shawcross, and the second collaboration in Royal Salute's Art of Wonder series, debuted at the 2023 edition of Freeze London last week, with a discussion about the project between Shawcross and veteran auctioneer and Artnet News contributor Simone de Puri. On this episode of the Art Angle podcast, we present a special live recording of their fascinating conversation. I would like to warmly welcome you all for this conversation with uh, Conrad Shawcross here at the Royal Salute Lounge, Freeze London. And I must say I was thrilled when I was asked to have this conversation with Conrad because I'm fascinated by his work and I know very, very little about it. So I hope that this conversation will allow us all to hear much, much more about Conrad's very unique practice. And arriving this morning, I had the privilege of experiencing this time chamber. And I'm told that most of you have experienced it already. So we will not repeat the experience now. But I think this is a perfect way to start this conversation. And I would like to ask Conrad how it came about. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So yeah, after the, if anyone hasn't seen it, there'll obviously be every five minutes, they'll do the whole experience. So please stay and enjoy that afterwards. So yeah, it's been a great journey and it's been about a year and a half. I was approached 18 months ago to make a bottle, essentially. Royal Salute have been great. They've really allowed the whole thing to sort of snowball into something much more ambitious than I think they expected at first. But they've been really great to allow me to sort of kind of push the envelope, really. I've sort of managed to hijack the lounge and turn it into this scary bar. This has been kind of really fantastic. So we've got a soundscape that's done by Sonia, who's here. Really on every sort of level, it's sort of um, targeting one's senses on a taste level with the whiskey, on an optic level, on an oral level, on a sort of tactility in terms of I've designed the stools and the table, the bottle, the light sculpture on the ceiling, which is called the limit of everything, which opens and closes and shifts the shadows and accelerates and de-accelerates time. So it's really trying to sort of kind of challenge you on every level. 
it certainly did challenge me on every level, let me tell you that. And I love it because it is a sensorial experience and it really appeals to all of your senses. The lighting is one incredible aspect of it, the structure that you've created above the table. And I'm told that you have a similar one in your own house, in your kitchen. Yeah, no, I have a sort of half-size one of this and it, it basically, the lights kiss in the middle and then they slowly, gradually spiral out and sweep out and it creates these shadows across the table. And I've, I've always been interested in the way that when we invite people to dinner in my house, that at first they don't notice the shadows moving, but it sort of adds to the sort of intoxication of the sort of evening, the sensory intoxication. And then you point the shadows out and suddenly they're aware of them, but there is this sense of these sort of lengthening and shortening shadows, this sort of acceleration of the day, almost like a time lapse of the day. So that while the machine is very incremental, there's this sense of a slowness, but then there's also a rapidity. So time is both slowing and speeding up at the same time. I mean, you've approached the issue of time. I mean, all our lives are dictated by time. Mm. And uh, very few artists, in a way, have taken time itself as a topic of their work. That's what I'm so fascinated by, uh, that you have particularly focused on time. Yeah, and I, for about 30 years, I've been sort of preoccupied by it. And I, I mean, since I was a kid, I was preoccupied. I was saying yesterday in another interview that the first time I got upset about time was when I started to think about it was when I was about eight or seven even, and the clocks went forward and I was a terrible procrastinator on my homework. On a Sunday, it was always sort of like, I'm going to do it later, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. And then one weekend on a Sunday, the clocks went forward and I was really upset that I'd lost this hour that sort of was forcing me to basically this ultimatum of having to do the homework. I started asking, how does anyone have the power to change time? And I was like, how can a government or a, anyone have the power to, to change this? We all grow up under this sort of tyranny of the clock and this, this index of time, but it's essentially a social structure and it's an imposition on upon us. It's a false reality or it's a form of reality. It's essentially a sort of social construct that is, allows us to sort of index our days and our weeks and things. I mean, some things are profound in terms of the index, the, the cycle of the moon is the reason we have the seven days of the week. But actually the index of the day is totally arbitrary. There's no reason why we have 24 hours. In a way, it would be more poetic to have 36 hours in a day because it would fix into the 360, which is to do with the rotation of the Earth around the Sun. So there is that, but the, so the 24 is actually quite an arbitrary number. It's interesting that you were very upset having lost that one hour when the hour moved forward. I was a lousy, lousy pupil at school, had a terribly bad school career, and so I had to repeat a year, and I was incredibly upset. My God, they stole one whole year of my life, and I was devastated at the thought. And when we are young, of course, the time spent is all in relation to the times that we have actually spent on this planet. And yeah. you're still in a phenomenally young artist, you're the youngest royal academician ever, but do you find that getting older that time accelerates? No, completely, and that's a sort of mathematical fact, as you just pointed out, when you're four years old, a year is probably is half of your conscious life, whereas when you're my age, at 45, a year is, is only 2% of your life, and when you're 80, it becomes almost 1%. There is definitely this sort of terrifying acceleration of time as a sort of genuine perception of it, and when you're younger, it, your childhood feels like it's going to go on for an eternity. Slowly, that roller coaster, you sort of go over the edge. The acceleration is terrifying. 
Yes. No, I thought that it's a constant acceleration until we leave this planet, but I did a retreat recently where you had to spend a week with people that you had never met in your life, and the first thing you had to do was to leave your phone when you arrived, and you were not allowed to read papers, books, television, or anything, so you were cut off from the world, and every day we were getting up at 6 a.m. I remember reaching 10 a.m., and I said, my God, time has stood still. I mean, I thought this was the longest week ever, mm-hmm. and I suddenly thought, when we don't have all these distractions that we have on a constant level, that suddenly it gives you a very different perception of the passing of time. Absolutely. It must have been quite a shock without all that technology or those indexes. Yeah. And then the most surprising thing when you ended the week and recuperated your phone and recuperated being linked to the world was to see that the world did manage to continue turning even <laughs> even without you being stressed and uh, yeah. concerned about a lot of things happening. But I really did live those five minutes in terms of the experience you did here in the time chamber yeah. so consciously. I think these were very filled five minutes. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, it, it's an, an intense experience. We put a lot of uh, attention to the detail. These sculptures are all chosen so that because they are structural and the, the shadows pass through them and creates these triple shadows which merge and diverge and peel away and fall away. So the whole room is really considered as a whole. You've created, uh, in German you call it, uh, the Gesamtkunstwerk, a complete work of art where every aspect of it is... I fell in love with those tools and Mm. (laughs) I think they're just gorgeous objects and I was immediately asking, uh, are these available individually? Can one acquire those? I then bent onto the table to look at how this table is built and I really... I'm fascinated by the way you have approached every detail, every design. And usually when you have collaborations between brands and artists, this is like a kind of a side project of these artists in the practice of these artists. Whereas I feel you've taken this as a pretext to create an entirely very, very relevant uh, work of art in your overall oeuvre. Yeah, no, I have, um, I mean, I, there's a slight sickness in my gallery, like, you just should just keep it very simple, don't go crazy and do the collaboration, and there's something in me that I just, I'm full of hardwired that I have to sort of blow the doors off any budget that I'm given. But it's been a real pleasure. I'm really happy with this bottle. It's a sort of, we've spent a lot of time prototyping it. And the way I work often is sort of fusing or combining. It's a bit like the whiskey in a way. There's this sort of combination of splicing stuff and blending stuff together. I just um, coincidentally come back from a residency where I was in the Maldives, which was the most cushy residence I've ever done. It was a wonderful thing in this resort where they have a glass foundry and I'd come up with this idea of these spun discs which are sort of analogous to like solar systems or galaxies or black hole accretions which tend towards flatness and I'd come up with this idea and then this bottle project came up with Royal Salute and I was really trying to splice these two things together. It's hopefully worked really well in that sense and the disc itself is to represent a sort of almost like the planetary envelope of all of our planets that revolve around the sun and then I'm sure you've seen those um animations on the internet where you you see the planets revolving around the sun and then they it pans out and you see the sun then hurtling through the galaxy at these unimaginable speeds and the the planets are almost like little fish following a whale through the darkness and you see this sort of helical pathway so the spike on this is representative of the sun's journey through space so the bottle is this sort of vessel for this 53 year old whiskey but this 
this object is this sense of time on a cosmic level, not on a human level or on a sort of a quotidian level or an annual level, but a sort of the, the, tra- the, the time through on a profound kind of galactic level. It's the sort of connotation of that vector of time. No, it's very, very striking. The other element was the sound. How do you work with the sound? You said the person who did the soundtrack for this installation yeah, is here? Yeah, so we work really yeah. close. Sonia's just there. So we work really well. She's based in New York. I was sending her kind of samples of black holes and sounds of black hole mergers. And it was uh, really nice to work with her on that. And I'd just done this residency in Nottingham University, studying the early universe and the early initial conditions of the Big Bang and looking at black hole mergers and gravitational waves. And so we were sort of feeding that into the stuff and creating this quite ominous, but quite sort of sense of sort of space, a soundscape of space and time. And it was great. So that was the sort of final sort of element of the whole puzzle. What fascinates me is that clearly mathematics and science as a whole is very much at the base of your work. And uh, very often when you have somebody who is mathematically very talented, they are more drawn to music. And you have a great example of people who are top musicians and who were mathematically highly, highly gifted. And in the visual arts, it's in a way more unusual to have somebody who has this deep scientific mathematical uh, yeah i am um, i really tried many many instruments i was very very enthusiastic about music but i have yes. well, i would say sort of enthusiasm 10 but skilled too i mean i really tried i love music and i appreciate music but i have no coordination to be able to use my two hands in terms of playing and i can dance like a demon though <laughs> <laughs> So the other day I had the pleasure of meeting you at a mutual friend who is Maltese, Francis Sultana, Mm -hmm. and um, he is... uh, preparing a, a very important institution devoted to contemporary art, which has not opened yet. I had the privilege of selling a Ugo Rondinone sculpture, which was the okay. first sculpture that was acquired by that institution a few years ago. That's and um, you're working on a major, major project for them. Yeah, no, which is really exciting. I was just there last week after the Ugo Rondinone. I'm really really delighted because they bought this work of mine. It's a key work that was installed outside the Royal Academy 10 years ago called the Dappled Light of the Sun, which is a cloud of hundreds or thousands of tetrahedrons that cascade in scale outwards and form these tendril-like formations and these very sort of delicate stilts. And it's it's a five-ton sculpture permanently installed outside the entrance. The museum is opening next year, but I have a sort of prelude show that's opening at the end of the month where I have 10 light works, which are sort of caged light work, not in this vein of this, but in these, create these shadows, these complex shadows in projections into the room. And then there are these beacons on the battlements that are almost like early warning systems, which use semaphore, and spend this message across the Valletta Bay, the harbour, saying now out to sea. So there's a sort of hearkening that the museum is about to open. And so it's quite a big show, and it'll be on when this museum opens next year as well. So there'll be uh, hopefully a, yeah, a lot of attention to the museum and to the show. Well, I look forward, hopefully, to be able to come and visit it uh, next year when the museum opens. I've only been one single time to right. uh, Malta, cool. and uh, I did not realize that it's the base of the work is the installation that you did at the Royal Academy, which is an incredible work. And I feel that Malta is a very good choice for this uh, being permanently installed. And cool. also the, the light, the quality of the light that you have. Is yeah, Valletta and Malta is the most fascinating sort of island, and it's... The sort of medieval history of the Knights Templar is extraordinary, but it's also 
got the most extraordinary kind of prehistoric temples, these temples that worship the dog star Orion. They predate Stonehenge and pre-established kind of ideas of early civilization by two or 3,000 years. Just at the end of the Ice Age, these land bridges to Sicily and things, and they're most extraordinary prehistoric temples. Now tell me, we have here a, a number of your works, and this here is a smaller version of the big sculpture, which is 14 meters high, I believe. 14 meters, yeah, it's outside the Francis Crick Institute in uh, King's Cross. You can see it from the Eurostar through the western windows. And that was a piece that we put in in 2014. I'm very proud of that work. And then these works are called Fractures, which are a similar kind of in their dogma. They, these are stacks of tetrahedrons which grow as they ascend. Uh, these ones have the same kind of, kind of uh, sort of geometric dogma, but the skin has been pulled away and there's this ephemeral helix inside. There's these sort of hint at the skin remaining. It looks almost like a light bulb that's exploded before it falls to the ground. So they, they only have a sort of resonance to a sort of DNA model, but also this sense of entropy and growth within it. So there's a sense of time or change within the model of like an amino acid or something, but, but there's a sense of time. So they sort of contradict slightly. They appear kind of empirical, but then they sort of fail as models, but hopefully succeed as artworks. Hopefully they ask questions rather than answering them. There's a larger version of these I've just installed in Bedford Park in West London. That's a memorial to the poet Yeats which is um, placed in the cemetery in Bever Park, where he used to live. Do these exist in editions or...? Uh, they do, yes. These are editions of three. Those are unique uh, works. And then this manifold is an edition of three. And this, this one is similar to um, a piece I've just installed in Liverpool Street, outside the crossrail entrance of uh, Moorgate. So it's just been installed. It was a 10-year project and finally installed after three years of being in storage. But it's finally been placed outside of Moorgate entrance of Liverpool Street. That's great. So when I was asked to have this conversation with you, I said uh, I would love to do it, but I'm the worst person to ask because I'm not very familiar with your work. And then the person told me, no, but you've just posted something on Instagram of it. I said, did I? And uh, I had to go and uh, do an auction. My avatar was doing an auction, but uh, AI is still not sufficiently developed. So I had to do the auction live and then a camera was filming me and the avatar was was mimicking my movements, but all this was happening in a studio way, way out in East London. Okay. And on my way to that studio, I suddenly saw this incredible structure. It looked to me like a big, big uh, diamond, a square cut, beautifully cut diamond. And I instantly photographed it in every angle. <laughs> I have every light effect with it. I was just totally fascinated by it, right. but not yeah. knowing at all that it was your work. What right, can you right. tell us about that particular yes, work? I think this is the optic cloak in Greenwich. It's more of an architectural intervention rather than a sculpture in its own right. It's basically concealing a series of flues inside it, which is green energy. It's a low-carbon energy center on the Greenwich Peninsula that powers all the, the homes on the peninsula. There was a competition to come up with a way of hiding these chimneys. They'd created this kind of steel frame that was hiding all these chimneys because the council had said they didn't want there to be chimneys on the horizon because chimneys were also a dirty word. And I kind of wasn't expecting to win the competition, but I proposed that we had to celebrate that this was a chimney and not hide the fact that it was a chimney. And so I opened it up and allowed the wind to pass through it But because this, this big steel box they put around it was weighing 600 tons and it was still struggling against the wind because it was so thin. So I suggested that we open it up, celebrate the fact that it was there were all these flues inside it, 
and we actually reduced the weight of it by 40 or 50 percent. So we made it greener. But what I was interested by was this fact that it was very, very thin and it faced east to west, like this monolith. So it was going to get this very low light from both the sunrise and the sunset. And we created this moray. And I did a lot of research into moray interference patterns, did all these sort of tests of how to, of whole size, orientation, uh, angle. And so every day and the light passes, penetrates through it or reflects off it. And it's always changing in terms of its dynamic relationship to the sun. Well, I was fascinated because having seen it at various stages of the day, and I've seen it uh, late afternoon when yeah. the sunset, and the way that structure works with different light is just stunning. And that's why, for me, it looked like a giant uh, diamond, a giant gem. And I actually risked my life <laughs> trying to photograph it from different angles because I was walking and suddenly I saw that I was on the motorway. I was literally walking on the side of the motorway. So I managed to find a way to get back into slightly less dangerous areas but that is always the best thing when you are struck by something without knowing anything about the context without knowing uh, having the knowledge which uh, artist is behind it or what's supposed to be behind it and I was literally fascinated by by this and um, uh, so I was all the more excited when I heard that Thank you. you were behind it. Thank you yeah we're doing hopefully we're doing some similar works like that in the desert in the Middle East, which I'm very excited about, which we really play around with these sort of monolithic things in the sun and uh, these sort of huge standing stones that, re that kind of use the summer, winter and summer solstices to sort of create these very beautiful sunrise effects. And they could have essentially melt away like lace. But these will be real sculptures because they won't be hiding an energy center. There won't be any compromise, but they'll be primarily um, sculptural forms. See, scale is something fascinating because you have some times you see a uh, work of art that only works on a large scale. Or, um, but what I'm intrigued, and I think this time chamber demonstrates it, is here we see these works on an intimate domestic scale, let's say. And uh, this sculpture is 14 meters high near Houston. And one could easily imagining it to be much, much larger, like the one you've just said you're sure. working on. I do enjoy working at scale, so it's something I really relish, absolutely. And when I think of other artists, which are other contemporary artists that you admire? Because, as I said at the outset, there are very few artists that are completely kind of science, mathematic-based. I don't know, are there any other artists that, um, that well, peers I, that you well, I, look I up to? Um, I mean, I, I think my, my favorite sculptor, who sort of I always talk about, is, is probably Mike Nelson, but it's quite different work than I make, but I simply adore his installations and his show at the Tate a few years ago called Asset Strippers was a show that I found very, very moving and very beautiful. So, But it's quite different from me uh, in terms of what he does, but um, I would say that he's definitely one of my sort of heroes as an artist. Yes. Um, yeah. And if we look at art of the past, who is your ultimate hero? Well, I think a lot of the rule-based artists were sort of people that like guess were very interested. So the Sol Lewitt and uh, the Carl Andre kind of model, or even Monet is someone I refer to in terms of that repetition of trying to kind of exhaust uh, sort of all the possibilities of one scenario. So it's rule-based, but looking at that sort of stuff is really... Um, of interest. I put Solar Wit and Monet in the same bag because he would go back to the same lily pads and the lily pads would be his brick. Solar Wit would be the cube. And so you kind of find your brick and I use the tetrahedron as my brick, use the tetrahedral sort of geometry, these as well, and the dappled light of the sun. 
and this schism that I have at Chateau Lacoste, or uses the tetrahedron as my building block. Those sorts of artists are sort of the ones I guess I follow in a bit of a lineage with. Yes, you could even be coined as the Leonardo da Vinci of our time in a way because of your scientific approach. Well, that's very kind of you. I have a show at the Institute of Mathematics in Oxford at the moment when we've been doing these really inspiring lectures with mathematicians and artists and we've been um, trying to sort of bring artists into the Institute and mathematicians to talk to artists, take people outside of their comfort zone and really explore ideas of geometry and philosophy and, and mathematics. And it's been really, really rewarding. It, the show's curated by Fatos Ustek, who has done the free sculpture this year. So we've organized a series of lectures and we were talking with Roger Penrose and um, Marcus de Sautoy and um, Lilian Lin and really sort of bringing wonderful artists and, and extraordinary scientists and mathematicians to sort of try and kind of exchange ideas and sort of talk through these ideas of perception and mathematics. I mean, some of your work is very architectural. Would you be tempted to go the whole way to build not only just a building, but you could uh, conceive of a city or <laughs> <laughs> something? Well, city, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd love to, I, I do have projects to sort of build immersive sort of experiences. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do is, as an artist is, is trying to create um, extraordinary analog experiences in an increasingly digital world. So I may fail at that, but I still think that a lot of the things I make are impossible to replicate digitally. They're too complicated. There are too many thousands of holes within the system. The geometry is too complicated to create them virtually. And they crash the most powerful computers. So I'm sort of still sort of trying to um, beat the machine in that sense. And I may die trying and fail in the end. That was my position. And I'm going to try and sort of maintain that as long as possible. I love the fact that you beat the machine because we <laughs> live at a time well, when the machine sadly beats us and uh, even in chess and in uh, uh, most areas. So that gives me hope. Yeah, well, it's a foolhardy sort of position to take, but I'm quite a foolhardy person, so that's fine. That's great. And uh, the other thing that fascinates me is your use of many, many different materials and your fascination with materials. I mean, uh, going back to my uh, stools that I adore, uh, I think your early work was very much uh, with woods and, and different types of woods. And Yeah, so these stools hark back to a kind of crosshatch that was in the core of these mechanical sculptures. So there was a hub made of oak and these fast-spinning light works or rope machines And this is the, the double crotch crossover that has, um, it's almost like a Japanese sort of detail. It's got also a Chinese sort of detail. But I used to make everything in this one by one inch oak that I used to do all the mortising, all the joinery myself. And it was just sort of things I would build in my bedroom. And then we gradually shifted towards metal. But my heart and my kind of romance with wood was really, really very strong back in the day. I slightly moved away from wood in terms of the machines I was making because I got that, a little bit of that Leonardo stuff, but it was beginning to become a little bit like I was being a bit whimsical or nostalgic. I took the machines into a more kind of contemporary, more timeless materials, more engineered. So I didn't get that. I was trying to sort of move away from that sort of slight association with Heath Robinson, the kind of mad contraption thing, rather than, so I want the machines to have this elegance, this authority of the machine, and for people to have to take them very seriously as functional objects. But then beneath that, there's this poetic heart that lies at the core of it, that is hidden by this cloak of rational design and intent. That's uh, totally fascinating. One uh, question is, after all, we are here at the Freeze Art Fair, and uh, I always find it a 
challenge for first of all for a young artist the key is to try and get an audience to get people to see your work and then once you do have success then the next challenge is to grow creatively and so many artists I feel when they found the formula that somehow works will then repeat ad infinitum that one formula even at the risk of creatively basically being stuck and uh, I feel that your work and your practice right from the start has not at all been preoccupied by commercial considerations or by how the, it could appeal commercially to an art buying audience and uh, as you've seen there's a large art buying audience I mean yesterday the place was packed and I, I think it will be packed again during the day yeah I mean I'm really driven by enthusiasm I think it is safe to say that I'm better at making ideas than I am at making money I think uh, but I'm a real enthusiast and I just I love being given problems to solve so it's, yeah, it's driven by that, by hopefully a real genuine kind of um, excitement and joy of making. I think it's very uh, uh, palpable and that's what I love about it. We have five minutes left for this conversation and then we will open it to conversations. But I always find that the most interesting artists are those who are not at all preoccupied what the reception to their work might be and who just single-handedly follow their own path and that is very much your case. What is your ultimate dream? I mean you are I would say uh, early mid-career, not even mid-career, you still well, at uh, early stages of your career. So what is your ultimate dream to achieve as an artist? Oh gosh, um, well I, I think one of the next things I want to do is just set up a, my studio. I have a wonderful studio in London but we're a bit threatened in London with all the war on trucks and things. I've got a wonderful team, but there is a need probably to sort of move outside of London and have a second facility. But I'm actually really interested in setting up a way of making that potentially is open to a whole community of other makers and artists that is a carbon-free ways of making. So it would be abandoning kind of sheet materials like ply and metals, which are very carbon intensive, but going into sort of uh, casting using hydrogen, so it would be using recycled metals, green hydrogen furnaces, local woods from the forest in Sussex where I was thinking, and just constraining my way of thinking to only carbon-free ways of thinking. So it would, the aesthetic would change by the constraints that have imposed upon me. My engineer and I have this phrase called the liberty of constraint that he sort of used ages ago, which I really love as a phrase of his, but it's that design without constraint is sort of impossible. But I would like to sort of try and constrain a new way of generation of work or a new era of my work that's like completely this in this carbon-free sort of strategy. And that's very exciting because it's really constraint and uh, that a necessity that creates uh, creativity and that is yeah. clearly mm. the case especially if you create your own constraints in a way uh, in the way yeah. you just uh, described it. Have you also done two-dimensional work or is mostly um, uh, multi-dimensional? One thing I know that I'm not is a well musician for sure and a painter. I'm not um, either of those and I <laughs> should not try to tackle painting at all because I'm not very good at it. But I love drawing. I mean drawing is a key to my sort of whole practice. I've got drawers and drawers of notebooks going back to when I was 14. And that's a wonderful sort of resource that I have. And they're not pretentious in that they contain shopping lists. They have my son's homework and there's 
diary entries about banal and important stuff. There's key sketches of ideas that then germinate technical drawings. They're just very much a sort of go-to thing. But what's wonderful about the notebooks is you, you open a notebook on a page and you, it's from 1997 in August of a day and you, you read a line in this thing and you're taken back to the most extraordinary thing where you can hear the birds singing, you see the cappuccino on the table, the person sitting next to you, everything is taken back. Through the process of writing it, it sort of, it takes you into this amazing part of recesses of your mind that is forever captured. Just going back through my notebooks is just like a extraordinary kind of thing. These just trigger the most amazing kind of memories. This is so wonderful because I find, I don't experience it so much with visual arts, but I find music and smell for me are the two things which instantly bring you back like a time capsule. I mean, there's certain smells where suddenly, wow, you remember the precise moment. It may be 40 or longer back and you remember the exact instance as you relive it. Or when you hear a piece of music or it can be a pop song or something and you know exactly where you were at that precise moment and what your emotions were and you can kind of recreate it. Absolutely. I mean, that's the sort of power of art. There's a lot of scientists or sort of um, computer programmers who are always trying to bottle the sort of tingle factor in music or in art and sort of create these formulas that are going to make the sample all that. And I think with AI, this is the sort of big thing that I hope that art will always resist this, is that with art, there isn't this formula and there isn't this possibility of doing that because everyone who looks at a work of art on a wall, say you mentioned Picasso before or, or this piece or whatever you want to use as the example, everyone who looks at a work of art or listens to a piece of music due to their gender, their education, their culture, their sexuality, their experience, their love, their joy, their trauma, will see something different in that work of art. And it's impossible to predict that. I mean, I think when people see the same thing, it's not a work of art. If everyone sees the same thing in something, it's not a very good piece of art. And the important is that that breadth is untappable, it's unbottable, it's just free and it, everyone will always see something different. So just one last question before the Q&A. What sign of Zodiac are you? I'm Taurus. Taurus. Ah, yes. strong. It takes, of course, all signs of the Zodiac to create the art world and to create a great world. But what are your feelings about astrology? Because it's a science. Well, I'm interested in, in that I think that gravity has a profound effect on everything quite clearly and that the idea that at the moment of your inception or your birth there is a particular moment where all the stars and the and the planets are in a certain position is is of real interest in terms of like these things could have a palpable effect the moon has a huge effect on us in terms of the tide and we are 80% water and I think that where I don't necessarily agree with it is where the the partitions of them into these into these kind of mythological animals or characteristics is where it becomes more dubious in my mind. But the idea that we are affected by the geometry of the universe and the attraction of the gravitational pull of these entities is definitely plausible. Right. So it's a time for questions now. Yes. So <laughs> I'd love to open it to all of you. Conrad will answer any questions you may have. Not about star signs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you use Fibonacci in your Yes, we have done. Yeah, lots of sequences, progressions within the work. We have definitely done that. The work is very driven by mathematics, so the whole geometries, the proportions are all based on very specific ratios and yeah, mathematics. 
Thank you so much, Conrad and Simone. Conrad, you mentioned that uh, these glass discs that you worked with Rosalie was one of the first times you've worked with glass. What do you think you'll do next with glass? Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's difficult to say. I'd like to try and make these discs on a much, much larger scale. You're kind of at the limit of the spinning process, but I've been thinking of scanning them and then maybe casting them on a much bigger scale so that you can sort of basically walk around it or under it or through it and see and then it just can put this idea of this lens distortion through it it would be really exciting would you also design the actual glasses because yeah. i must say when the whiskey started to move on the table because of your light effect of course uh, no not because it was drinking early morning but i thought in the way that you literally design everything that yeah. you could do extraordinary uh, no, I'd glasses. like to. We have designed a set of plates recently that are based on these manifolds, these cords falling in silence. And the glasses, we didn't design them, but we chose them very, very carefully because they're parabolic glass with a stem, which creates this beautiful inflection of yellow through the whiskey and through the cocktail that forms this golden kind of inflection of a sort of focal point upon the table. The glasses and the stem, they form this gnomic shadow, like a gnomon in a sundial. The whole idea is not only the bottle of the table, when 16 people sit around the table with the 16 glasses, they all form these triple dances and the shadows coalesce and overlap. The table also has these kind of lines scribed into it akin to a, an old star chart or a sort of oceanic map for navigation and they're based on specific numbers to do with the whiskey that we sort of use again as a constraint just to sort of in place itself on the table. The glasses are very important but yes it, it, it could see so we could carry on trying designing everything the cutlery and doing everything I mean it's sort of it could be um, never-ending which is good <laughs> I need to keep busy because otherwise I go crazy. <laughs> right. I actually have two questions. The first one is, Simone, what is your star sign? Oh, my What's your my star sign is Scorpio. And then rising is? Oh, my rising sign is Libra. Ah, very nice. And that's why I love art and love yeah, we are. Um, seeking harmony. My second question is for Conrad. When you were conceiving of this experience with time, were you thinking of it in the linear sense or were you also thinking about the other concepts of time, whether that things that are happening at all times, there's other concepts and ideas and like other philosophies of how time moves and exists. Were you thinking about that as well when you were thinking about the experience of almost like stopping time within this space? I think it's on, on all these different levels. I think obviously we have a, as a child, it was about challenging the kind of construct of what the day was and time and the unraveling that as these sort of ideas of how the society had sort of compartmentalized time. As human beings, we have a very specific perception of time, but actually it's, it's probably quite illusory in reality. And, that, and there are these extraordinary sort of ideas that physics throws up that there's this sort of sense of, of a kind of universal time in terms of the universe of expansion from this, this space-time diagrams from the Big Bang outwards. But then there's this uh, innate paradox to it that they're on a quantum level, an atom within our body, a hydrogen atom or a helium atom, has never changed in its entire, in the entirety of it since its beginning, billions of years of existence. And that time doesn't exist. The measure of change, which is essentially what time is, doesn't exist on a quantum level. So there is no time beneath a certain level, but it only exists beyond a certain size. But in the essence of everything, there is no, time does not exist, which is an extraordinary kind of idea. 
So with these pieces, there is this sense that this bottle is this vector that's hurtling through space. It's got this 53 years of whiskey within it, but it's also, it's a, hopefully it's just all about all of these different ideas of time on a, on a quantum level, on a cosmic level, but on a human level, it's about everything, but it's just the paradoxes of it. It's the undefinability of it, the illusion of time. The piece is about decimating the idea of now. So it's about relativity. There is no such thing as now. It's really just to chisel away at what we believe to be true is not there. It's about questioning our reality. Well, um, I think this is possibly a good way to end <laughs> because I always find that great, great, truly great art is timeless and that you lose the notion of time when you see great art and that you don't think instantly, oh, this is so 1960s or this is so that. It transcends time. So I love the concept that we're not the slaves of time. So I would like to thank you so, so much for this fascinating conversation and thank insight you. into you, your work you. and uh, letting us share you know, uh, some, some inside knowledge. And I would like to thank very much Royal Salute for having commissioned this extraordinary piece. And I must say, I'm grateful for the five minutes I did this morning. Uh, it was a very, very special moment. Thank you all so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Simone. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.